Welcome, listeners, to the Editor's Desk, our regular First Things podcast from here in New York. I'm Rusty Reno. I'm the editor, and I'm sitting at my, you guessed it, desk. And I have with me for today's episode, Gary Saul Morrison, professor of arts and humanities at Northwestern University, and most importantly, author of many fine pieces in First Things magazine. And today we're going to talk about his October 2020 article, much commented upon, suicide of the liberals. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. As I said, much commented upon suicide of the liberals. It came out in early fall of 2020 after the summer of 2020, uh, which was a, a period of, uh, of remarkable radicalism. It just this piece about the Russian context prior to the Russian revolution was just resonated so powerfully to with our 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 readership and and so I want to go back and take a look at some of the th- observations that you make about that time period. I mean you begin the piece really drawing our attention to how brutal and deadly the extremism was of political Russian political culture at the beginning of the twentieth century yes, I mean, it was a t- it was a time of radical ideology and radical action, um, brutal violence, um, terrorism of, of a sort that um, is far beyond anything we we experience or, or could even imagine when you described the number of thousands of people who were killed, you know, bombs thrown randomly into cafes with nails in, in the bombs, anyone with a... Um, any government connection or any uniform was likely to have sulfuric acid thrown in his face and, and be mutilated. Uh, and this was widely celebrated by um, the intelligentsia. It seemed like there was an almost sadistic or a love of violence for its own sake or a love of destruction for its own sake that was coursing through the the Russian culture or the culture of the left. Is that fair? Yes, that that is fair. Um, and what always what happens in cases like that, I imagine the Russian case is not unique, is that people who had no political uh, leanings, who were just naturally criminals or sadists, joined in because they had political <laughs> And in fact, the revolutionaries knew this and welcomed welcomed them. So you know, there you might have you know robberies in which people would. You know, well, okay, first I'll give a little money to the revolution and then I'll take the rest for myself. <clears throat> that was that was not uncommon. Okay. It was very hard to draw the line, in fact, between, you know, the revolutionaries and the criminals, and they were very often the same people. Hmm. Um, you describe or a term you use is moralistic nihilism. Hmm. Uh to describe the 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 mentality. Uh, it's an interesting juxtaposition. On the one hand, claiming the moral high ground. On the other hand, really saying ev- everything is permitted. Uh, you know, nothing about con- contemporary society has any value. 
Well, put it this way. If you wanted to be highly destructive or wreak your vengeance upon people, you wouldn't say, well, I just like being destructive. You would claim some high moral mm. purpose for it. Mm. So the laws, they're contradictory. They go together very well. They, one forms a justification for the other. And uh, I was not the only to notice that there were people at the time, you know, a handful of um, people who I guess some would have, they were the, called them the renegade liberals, the liberals who didn't go along with the other liberals. Uh, some of them were ex-Marxists who pointed this out. They even used phrases like, you know, nihilism and moralism go together. Um, there were a handful of those who pointed this out. It wasn't, you know, not just me now. Um, how incongruous that was and yet how it fit. You know, I guess you could say there's something psychological about, about that. You know, um, if people feel <clears throat> envy is an emotion. Let me put it this way. Envy is an emotion you attribute to other people. When you feel it, you call it the desire for justice. <laughs> well said. <laughs> and that was but, what was going on, you know. So, <laughs> what was striking about your account of the history of this time period is how you you say there are a few liberals who, you know, called a spade a spade, but the overwhelming consensus was, I guess, a kind of no enemies to the left, and that the liberal party, the cadet party. Uh, kind of like the Ford Foundation and the Soros Foundation of our time, not only did they countenance or refuse to denounce, but they actually actively supported and funded a lot of the radical extreme groups of that time period. Yes, that they would not actually do the violence themselves, but they would defend it and support it. Um, that I guess you could say that was the difference between them and the revolutionaries. Um, and the group of, you know, handful who objected, they were also cadets, but they, you know, were trying to get the cadets to be real liberals and not pseudo-liberal revolutionaries. And, you know, they were denounced by all the others. Um, you know, they published a book, you know, with their objections, which was the scandal of the time. And um, uh, they Land were Landmarks, right? Landmarks. That would be the translation uh, right. of the Russian title, 1909 volume, a kind of you, um, a, 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 a warning call, really. In retrospect, very prescient. That's right. And, you know, people like Solzhenitsyn cited it all the time as, you know, events prove them right. Um, but most of what, it, some of it is Russian specific, but a lot of what is said applies to the, this kind of mentality wherever and whenever it occurs. It can be read, you know, hmm. large passage can be read as in almost in any period as if they were written at that period. I want to, uh, for our listeners, uh, this is a, a, a passage from Solzhenitsyn's November 1916. And uh, Vor did I say Vortin that right? Yeah, that's, yeah, he's a um, he's an army colonel, uh, and he is talking to a professor, and uh, and this is the professor at the Russian professor circa, you know, nineteen sixteen, saying, in this is the professor in educated Russian society, by no means every view may be expressed, the whole school of thought 
A whole school of thought is morally forbidden, not merely in lectures, but in private conversation. And the more liberated the company, the more heavily this tacit prohibition weighs on it. I mean, that guy, <laughs> you know, I read that remember when this kid, we were we were we were working on this article for publication, thinking that could be could have been said in any faculty lounge and by a you know observant professor in 2020 or 20 or now for 2022 for that matter except they wouldn't dare <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well we say to we, we, we maybe professor tights might say that to each other very carefully in private but uh uh yeah you there's a um n- no enemies to the left uh a fear of being seen as reactionary the great curse word uh that that was ambient in in the Russian intelligentsia of that time period. Yes, and it was, you know, what what Solzhenitsyn is very good at is it's not just um, the fear of others calling you reactionary. It's the fear that you might have to think of yourself that way. Well, what if I am really? What if these really are? And those are just, you know, it produces, you know, Solzhenitsyn describes it about Thonatinsev. He has to resist this, feeling of practical hypnosis or enchantment that when he's with mm. a group of cadets who are all saying the same thing, he feels drawn to say the same thing himself, not because he believes it, because he doesn't want to feel reactionary. He manages to resist it, but he finds it very hard. And Solzhenitsyn is trying to describe to you, you know, the psychology that gets people to go along with things that... Um, they know better than in fact, there, there are characters in Dostoevsky like that too, but right. you know uh, that's sort of a much earlier period. Dostoevsky's really looking forward to this, um, you know, from small, relatively unusual indications of revolutionaries. But by this period, you know, revolutionary was, in one way or another, all educated people tried to pretend to be revolutionaries, even if they weren't. The I mean, in my own thinking, part of the allure of progressivism is the promise of the future. And that, you know, it's, um, I think, absent, you know, as religious faith wanes among the elite, they transfer their faith to the future, so to speak. And the problem with being a reactionary is you have to renounce your faith in the future. Um, and, and, uh, I mean, a reactionary is a person saying, you know, actually the present, you know, the future could be worse. <laughs> or maybe it was better in the past. Uh, and and I think that uh, um, it's interesting to compare to the American context where our progressivism uh, has elements of this in the post-war period. But I think of people like Arthur Schlesinger Jr. or Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, George Meany, the famous... Uh, labor leader, um, they did not seem actually to suffer from the same pathologies that the Russian liberals did before the Russian Revolution. No, I, I don't think they did at that. You know, at at that time, I, you know, I agree. Um, you, what really makes a situation like the Russian situation is when you get an intelligentsia in the Russian sense. You know, you can have educated people who don't constitute an intelligentsia in the Russian sense. We get the word intelligentsia from Russian, but in yeah. Russian, it, 
you know, it didn't mean educated people. You could be completely uneducated and be a member of the intelligentsia, and you could be a member very well educated, like Leo Tolstoy, and not be. Um, you, ha you know, you I, the crucial element is that your identity had to come first of all as a member of the intelligentsia, so that anything was thinkable but being rejected by other members of the intelligentsia. And that immediately meant you had to share their politics, because that's how they, that was the next way they defined themselves. So right. no matter what happened, you would find some way to agree. Um, and, you know, if it contradicted your values, you would find some way it didn't. That really wasn't true of George Meany or Arthur Schlesinger, so, as I recall, you know, the situations. They had their beliefs, but if, you know, somebody who called themselves to the left of them disagreed, well, fine, they disagreed. Um, but this, you know, this is, this is a distinct phenomenon. You know, if you want to find out if, if a group is like the Russian one and if the dangers are similar, you know, ask yourself, well, can you imagine somebody, you know, another faculty member, let's say, saying something radical that you would stand up and say, no, I'm a radical, but, but I don't agree with that. Um, and be prepared to be called a reactionary, or today it might be, a, I don't know, a racist, or I don't know what it would be. Um, can you imagine yourself doing that? Or would it be not just that you're risking, you know, social rejection, you're risking feeling bad in your own evaluation, you see. That's what really makes it. You can't imagine yourself outside that group. Yeah, and as you say that... Uh... As you describe the intelligentsia, kind of uh, all that matters in the end is the political. I mean, I think of um, you know, if you're a professor of literature as 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 you are, um, ultimately, your colleagues share a higher, deeper love of literature, say, uh, and that 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 is more important than your political views. But in a, a true intelligentsia in the Russian sense says, no, 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 that's got it in the wrong order. You have to have the correct political views. It doesn't really matter anything else. And I do think that that has, in my experience, that that has become more characteristic of our you know, intellectual class over the last generation than was the case when I was a young graduate student um, at university. Okay. Um, I'm sure. True. I, 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 and another quality that you identify in intelligentsia is a kind of cultivated alienation. And I, or it's what Lionel Trilling worried about in the 60s, what he called the oppositional um, ethic, the kind of, what am I, it's not that you kind of weigh the pros and cons. You just immediately assume, you know, whatever is anti-bourgeois is good and whatever is bourgeois is bad. And that kind of oppositional ethic or cultivated alienation, I think, is more characteristic of our of our time than it was, I think, when I was, a, again, a young student. So I, I do kind of worry that we have something more like the Russian intelligentsia than has been the case, was the case when Reinhold Niebuhr and Arthur Schlesinger Jr. flourished, or even Richard Rorty. You know, he made a great, it was a great hue and cry when he published Achieving Our Country, which was a, an attack on the anti-Americanism of the academic left in the university. Um, and he, so he kind of got out of line with this political, political correctness and was 
castigated, even though he had very high status in the, in the university. Yes, so I remember. i brewing for a while, hasn't it? I remember years ago when I, I heard Richard Rorty come to give a lecture. Um, I can't give you the exact date, but it must have been about a similar time. Uh, it was when communism still existed. And he had been talking to some Czech friends who were dissidents, and they had convinced him that, you know, liking the Soviet Union was not always a good thing, and the West might be right at some point. And he said this, and I, I remember the the audience at the university that was listening to him, which had come because they idolized him, was simply aghast. They could not believe he could be saying such a thing. It was just, <laughs> they walked out of it disillusioned. And I, he wanted to say to them, but you don't actually think the Soviet Union is any good. It, that wasn't the point. The point is you don't say things like that because it makes you sound like you sympathize with the wrong people. It doesn't matter what's true, you understand? Mm. That, that was the, you know, um, the key point. Um, and what Rorty had shown was that, you know, what is true really matters to him. You know, he may differ from other people, what it, you know, from you or me about what is true, but what's true really is the high value for him. And that was not true of the people who were listening to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have, uh, um, I mean, I disagree a bit with about Richard Rorty about many philosophical things, but I do admire him for, um, you know, pressing this, um, this, this critique that, that didn't win him any friends. So no. you know, hats off to him on that score. It didn't. Uh, one of the things, another thing that really jumped out at to me about the piece at the time and, and upon rereading it is the, the, the radicals were very frank about what they were planning to do. I mean, they didn't, to hide the fact that they thought that lots of people had to be killed. Quite the contrary. And then you want to ask, and yet the wealthy capitalists as well as the liberals finance them? You know, the, the famous, um, a, a famous sentence attributed to Lenin is, um, when we are ready to hang the capitalists, they will sell us the rope. But that understates it. The capitalists were Buying them the rope. <laughs> Here, take the money, buy the rope, hang us. And yet, you're saying, you have to think, what would be their psychology? They too couldn't bear the thought that they were not with the most progressive people. That was the most, so it blinded them to everything else. Um, you know, the idea that the capitalists or the, will always look in their self interest apparently isn't necessarily true. You know, another, I mean, Modris Eckstein's book, Right, Rights of Spring or Right of Spring, it's a history of uh, the decades before World War One, and he really documents the the widespread nihilism in elite culture, and not just among political radicals, which perhaps explains some of the I don't know, susceptibility of mainstream liberals to this kind of um, blindness to the, to the, to the real perils of, of these radicals that in some sense they didn't really believe in, they no longer had the courage of their own convictions. Um, and maybe they didn't think their society ought to survive. We're, we've got some of that, I think, in our, in our society that the West doesn't deserve to survive, that, 
you know, the cancer of, of, you know, white privilege is so great, dot, dot, dot. So there, there is a certain, I mean, you can't really refute these things philosophically because they seem to be rooted in a deep kind of pessimism and, and, and sense of, uh, of despair of the possibility of the future of, of, of things as they currently are. So you throw your lot behind revolution. It's your only hope. You know, even though you're not willing to do the deed yourself, you know, as you point out with these liberal elites. Part of the appeal of thinking that way, whether it's, you know, philosophical nihilism, you know, there is no truth or radical nihilism, everything has to be destroyed, is that, and the intelligentsia is always subject to this, it makes the person who says it feel superior. You idiots believe there's such a thing as truth. You idiots believe in the institutions of your society. We <clears throat> superior people. That's part of the, the real appeal there. And the way you can tell if it's it as opposed to it's sincere as well, okay, if you object to our culture because of certain sins, do you object to those sins <clears throat> where they occur elsewhere? Or are you willing to forgive them elsewhere as long as they're against us? See, that's the way you tell whether the professed belief is the sincere one. Mm. You know, I, I, I suspect when, you know, um, you know, Chairman Xi denounces Western values, he is perfectly sincere. <laughs> but right. um, he really does line up that way. But many of, you know, the people who produce similar denunciations will, are not prepared to denounce other people who are doing the same thing, only worse. That's why you can tell that, you know, it's something about the feeling of superiority or some other emotion similar, that that is part of the motivation. Simon Weil, I think, somewhere said that it's not religion that's the opiate of the people, it's revolution. <laughs> and I would qualify that and say, it's not religion that's the, religion may be the opiate of the masses, but in the modern era, revolution has been the opiate of elites. <laughs> yes, no, that's right. What is it? Raymond Arons of the opium of the intellectuals. Um, what was that the, again? Isn't, isn't one of Raymond Arons' books, The Opium of the Intellectuals, in the title of one of his books? Yes, I think that is the title of one of his books. Yes. What, what, Similar you know, intuition. He may yeah. quote Seymour Bay in that book. Yeah. <laughs> um, Are you hopeful about our present distempers? Well, I'm not a prophet, and I'm not an expert on the United States. Um, so I don't think my views <clears throat> are worth a whole lot. But if you want to know what they sure. are. <clears throat> You're a citizen of the university. So you, yeah. you, you, you go well, ahead. In, your, so your views, such as they are, okay. Sorry, I, I apologize well, for interrupting. Okay. Insofar, the university is informing my views. But mostly it's, you know, my study of um, Russia and the Soviet Union. And, you know, I am uh, quite pessimistic, not absolutely hopeless, but quite pessimistic. You know, I, if you look at how rapidly things have been changing and the pace is accelerating, you know, I see us in a Soviet situation within five to 10 years at most, where an interview like this will be impossible. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm, uh, on my pessimistic days, I share your sentiment. But I got to say, we, in my view, we, we live in a very paradoxical time. Um, you know, 
people announce their anti-capitalist views and then compulsively check their 401k balance. That's right. Uh, you know, Patricia Collier's, you know, promotes a radical Black Lives, you know, starts a radical Black Lives Matters organization and then uses money to buy houses so she can have an upper middle class life. So it's it's a very oddly stable, isn't it kind of perversely stable system? It's like what Herbert Marcuse worried about, the tremendous absorptive ability of our kind of liberal capitalistic society to sort of mute all radicalism. Um, You know, I don't see it that, I see what you're saying, but I don't see it that way. Communist leaders have a tendency to always make an exception for their own wealth and privilege. Okay, fair enough. I agree. You know, they're trained to do that. Okay, you know that's why you know AOC and and, and you know can have her own bodyguards and the, you know I you know I grew up in a my mother was a communist. I grew up in the cult, so I know the mentality. You don't worry about having that sort of privilege for the communists and, and yourself. It's there's no contradiction. You're brought up that way. It's it's. And think of it that way. That's why communist leaders are the way they are, privileged. But don't think of it as corruption, because that's what communism is. Yeah, and then another another source, I, I agree, I think it's a point well taken. But another source is, I, I looked at the response to the destructions of summer 2020. It was sort of Ivy League policy applied to the entire society. You know, the radicals take over the president's office. The president expressed sympathy for their concerns. He buys pizza for them. He makes arrangements so the local police don't intervene. You know, he vacates his office. He lets the fire burn, um, but it burns itself out. And, you know, a month later, <clears throat> the students kind of uh, retreat and go and business as, as usual. Concessions, new departments formed, faculty appointments allocated to these particular concerns. But things don't really, they do change, but they, they don't really change. They're certainly not revolutionary. It's not a revolutionary change. Well, Again, I, 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 I look at our uh, leadership of our society that sort of cynically indulges in, the, in, in a way much more, I don't know, conniving than the Russian liberals that you described who strike me as hopelessly naive. Well, it turned out they were hopelessly naive. They wound up being killed by the Bolsheviks. Yes, and I think that, you know, if the scenario that I'm afraid of takes place, we'll see a lot of that again. The people who think that they are, you know, simply going to... Invulnerable. Well, they think they're suppressing, you know, the misinformation of the people on the right or the center are going to find out that their views are the misinformation that are going to be suppressed next. And what they're going to do to those people are going to happen to them. And they're going to be shocked. But I'm one of you guys. You can't shoot me. It always right, happens. Right. The French Revolution yeah. as well, right? You know, right? I mean, that's the logic of revolutions, right? Um, well, here's hoping that that doesn't come to pass. <laughs> Say, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, you know, um, I'm not convinced it's necessarily going to happen. I just think it's more likely than not. Well, but what I, that's why I think it needs to be resisted, you know, because there is a the, Suicide of the Liberals, um, as, you know, as I point listeners to this October 20, well worth rereading. It really resonated, um, probably commented upon uh, in many newspapers and columnists and so forth. I think 
precisely because many people share your fears about the future. That's what that um, that evoked for for um, for our readership. So so thank you so much for for writing so, this very insightful piece, and and thanks for your time on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Much appreciated, and I love first things. So. Well, thank you. <laughs>